We're in Romans chapter 3 today. With this passage before us today of Romans chapter 3, Paul completes his indictment against man. The case against man which shows the utter sinfulness, depravity of man, and the, the need of a Savior. Now beginning with next week, we start to see the, the answer what, uh, of what God has provided through Christ. But this one more passage to kind of um, confirm one more time the sinfulness of man. I remember that we, uh, where we began back in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, in talking about the gospel. So if you go back there to Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, what follows this statement of the gospel is the reason why it is so needed. Because beginning in verse 18, we read about the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And from verse 18 all the way to where we are now at the beginning of chapter 3 has been an indictment against man, how, how man has turned his back on God as creator and has worshipped the creature rather, rather than the creator who thinking himself uh, wise has become a fool who has been given over to the depravity of his own mind and the wickedness of his own heart and has worked all manner of, of evil and therefore man is inexcusable both because of the evidence of creation and because of the law that has been given and because of the conscience that man has been given by God to know when he's done wrong. As we come to chapter 3 it seems as if Paul is addressing someone who perhaps has given a defense on behalf of men as if there's a, a pause between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 where he's, um, he's assuming someone uh, arguing on behalf of man and coming up with some objections like yeah but have you thought of this and so forth and so if you might uh, picture this for a few moments as being kind of like a court scene. And before Paul continues on with the, the case for the prosecution in chapter 3, we have a word from the defense. Okay, this is now. Just so you know which side I'm on here for the moment. 
In speaking for the defense, I'd like to say, first of all, that all this talk of sin has gotten out of hand. Paul has become an extremist, an alarmist, not to mention judgmental. Didn't someone famous once say, let him who is without sin cast the first stone? Maybe Paul should think of that. In fact, speaking of throwing stones, you might ask Paul sometime where he was when Stephen was being stoned. (coughs) Several things I would remind you of before we continue on with this judgmental nonsense of the prosecution. First of all, Paul makes it sound as if there was nothing good about being religious. As if our religious rights and honor of God had no effect and meant nothing. He even belittles the right of circumcision, which was, I remind you, given by God himself. Paul belittles it. Paul acts as if religion in general and circumcision in particular do not mean anything that they give us no advantage whatsoever but I want you to think about circumcision for a minute of course this was given by God ordered by God and those who are doing it are in obedience to God And one important reason that God gave the right of circumcision to Abraham and to his descendants is so that it would mark them as being different from other people, a special people, a chosen people. Listen to the words of God himself. Amos 3.2. God says of the Jews, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Or Deuteronomy 10, 15. The Lord delighted only in your fathers, meaning the the fathers of the people who were about to enter the promised land, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he, He chose their descendants, that's us, after them. You above all peoples as it is to this day. Now you see how we Jews are a special group, a chosen people. And circumcision was to mark us out for that. Paul belittles that as if it means nothing. Secondly, sin highlights God's righteousness. There are two implications from this. Since since the darkness of our sin makes God's glory look even brighter, His grace even greater, for where sin abounded, grace superabounded, why are we yet to blame for making God look good? I mean, how can God charge us with that? It's, It's like this. Let's say that this this bit of jewelry here represents the glory of God. But you see, when you put it against the backdrop of sin, the blackness of sin, how much better it looks. So 
So, sure, it looks fine like it's by itself, but compared to our sin, look how much better it looks. And so if our sin makes God's glory shine greater, why are we still to blame? I mean, how could God fault us for making him look good? There's another implication by Paul. And that is, <clears throat> it's as if he's saying, let us do evil that good may come. Thirdly, I would agree that some have sinned, no doubt, that many, especially of the Gentiles, have sinned. Even some Jews have sinned. But you, you can't brush everyone with such a broad stroke. Just because there are a few rotten apples in a barrel, you don't throw the whole barrel of apples out, do you? No, you recognize that there are maybe a few bad ones and you get rid of those, but the rest are okay. See, the way Paul presents it is as if everybody needs to be thrown out as if they were just rotten. And surely that's unfair to judge people that way. And the defense rests. <clears throat> but now let's look at Romans chapter 3. God is righteous to judge. And we're going to see in the first eight verses five reasons why that is so. <clears throat> first of all, man is accountable to the word. Verses one and two. What advantage then has the Jew or what, what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way. You see, Paul is not saying that the Jew does have has no advantage or that circumcision means nothing They're, they have much advantage to the Jews in many ways chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God the oracles are, are the lagoi the, from the word logos which means word the, the words of God have been given to them in fact if you look at chapter 9 verse 3 through 5 consider the advantages given to the Jews <clears throat> Paul you can see Paul's heart here for his countrymen the the Jews, he says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Then look at the advantages that pertain to them. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom According to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. 
Now, chiefly, it's because the Messiah came through the lineage of the Jews, but also notice all the other things that God has given to them. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the, the giving of the law, and so forth. So back here in, in Romans 3, when Paul says, what advantage then has the Jew, or what profit circumcision, much in every way. They've had a great exposure to God and to the will of God, the word of God. But that means that they are more accountable. Yes, they've had the advantage of having more light, but they are called to live up to that light. They've had the advantage of their relationship, but they have not taken advantage of it. The, the defense spoke of Amos 3.2, which says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That verse goes on to say, Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So what God is saying, yes, you've been chosen above all the families, therefore you have higher responsibility. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10 verse 15 is the verse the defense raised and says the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and he chose their descendants after them you above all the peoples as it is this day but if we look before and after that verse look down at verse 12 of Deuteronomy 10 And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Yes, they were chosen as a special people, but they were given this charge. Love God and serve him with all your heart, all your soul. Verse uh, 16 Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. God is a just God. He did separate them out as a special people but it, it also made them accountable so back to Romans 3 <clears throat> man is accountable to God's word and of course not only the Jew back at this time but, but everyone who has exposure to God's word today including us we are accountable to that word secondly Paul points out that God is faithful Verses 3 and 4. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. 
So what if there were some who were unfaithful? Will God be unfaithful because they were unfaithful? No. But most people, you see, tend to think of God's faithfulness in relation to his blessings, right? God has been faithful to us to to give us this and guide us here and answer this prayer. God is faithful. But you know when, when God judges, he is just as faithful as when he blesses because he has promised to bless those who follow him and to judge those who don't. And so when he is faithful to his promises of judgment, God is faithful. So what if some did not believe? It's true that, that many lived outside of the covenant. But that doesn't change the faithfulness of God. He is still faithful as as Paul later says in 2 Timothy 2:13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That is it's the very nature of God to be faithful. He he can't help it. God cannot be unfaithful to himself or what he has said. <clears throat> he is always faithful. Third, God is always true. Verse 4 says, Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Paul's answer to uh, verse 3 is certainly not and then um, and then he goes on to explain that <clears throat> the rest of verse 4 <clears throat> and the certainly not here I think is best translated by the New American Standard which says may it never be the, the direct translation of the Greek may it never be Such a thing is unthinkable. And Paul will use this form of, um, of argument, of question and answer throughout now the, the book of Romans. This is the first time he does so. But he comes up with a hypothetical argument and then he'll say, may it never be, certainly not, in no way or absolutely not. All those things could work. Indeed, let God be found true and every man a liar. In any dispute between man and God, God is always true, man is always the liar. In any dispute. If man, any man, any person were to come before God and say, I disagree with you on this, guess which one of them is wrong? In every case... And, and so it will be in, in judgment. When anyone thinks that, you know, you weren't fair to judge me on that. Let God be true. And every man a liar. This is this quote, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. It's taken from Psalm 51.4, which is David's penitential uh, Psalm after the incident with Bathsheba and Nathan addressed him and in the first part of this verse David says you 
you only have I sinned against and done this evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words and that you may overcome when you are judged that is if anyone were to bring any kind of accusation against God God would be in the clear God is always right to judge every sin that is done is done against God it might be against other people too often is against other people but preeminently every sin is against God so it's not a matter of whether people will judge it or not in fact you could go to court over a case and be acquitted maybe you murder someone and there's not enough evidence to convict you and so there's a hung jury and you get let off well if you get acquitted you are let out for that crime is God going to say oh well I guess so I must have been wrong no even if every man were to misunderstand and think that you were pure God will be true in his judgment God will judge the world verses 5 and 6 but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God so that's like the the jewels on the background of the the black background if our unrighteousness kind of highlights the righteousness of God makes it shine all the more what shall we say is God unjust who inflicts wrath and Paul is quick to point out I'm speaking as a man in other words this is this is foolishness of man that I'm, I'm speaking. This is how the defense might argue. And again, he says, certainly not, or may it never be. For then how will God judge the world? If there was, if there was something to this that, that our the darkness of our sin somehow highlighted the brightness of God's glory and that you could argue well maybe that's a good thing then if there were something to that argument then Paul is saying how, how could God judge the world and so he's, he's pointing out that the very fact that God will judge the world as has been pointed out numerous times in the Bible is proof that such a thing is ludicrous Genesis 18.25 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? And he will. John 1, uh, excuse me, Romans 1.32, after giving the list of sins, a uh, representative list of sins of mankind, Romans 1.32 says, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Chapter 2, verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds 
again and again we see the righteous judgment of God chapter 2 verse 16 in the day when God will judge of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel fifth grace does not remove judgment verse 7 and 8 is similar to verse 5 and 6 but contains a different element verse 7 for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory why am I also still judged as a sinner and why not say let us do evil that good may come as we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say their condemnation is just you see coming out of this teaching of Paul that God is gracious and that where sin abounded grace super abounded as we'll see later in the end of chapter 5 and beginning of chapter 6 in Romans people were taking that in the wrong way say well if grace is going to increase let's let's do more sin that makes God more gracious but grace does not remove judgment sometimes even in these days um, people mistake the idea of God's grace and that that we say that we are no longer under law but we are under grace sometimes people will hear that as well if we're not under law then we don't have a list of do's and don'ts that we have to keep and we're pretty much on our own God has taken off the leash and we are free to roam and do whatever we want and to God that's okay that's mis to misunderstand the grace of God the grace of God is not to give us license to sin but to, to give us the freedom to live for him as Paul wrote to the Galatians do not use your liberty as, as a license to sin but through your liberty serve one another we are to honor God and serve each other so grace does not remove judgment. Just because God is gracious doesn't mean he's not going to judge. He will. And rightly so. And here are some reasons why now in the following verses. First of all, the idea of impurity. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So Paul is kind of summarizing in verse 9 what he said from 118 through the end of chapter 2. As we've previously shown everyone, Jew and Greek, they're all under sin. So are we better than they? No. In no way. Now people like to, to think of... Um, religious life this way a lot of people if you ask them why should God let you into heaven you think you're a good person good enough to get in well I hope I'm good enough and I, I may not be perfect but I'm, I'm better than a lot of people I'm better than my neighbor I can tell you that 
I know a lot of people who are worse than I am. And so they're kind of hoping that in the scale, it's going to tip a little bit to their favor. In fact, it probably is tipped a little bit to their favor as they look around at the sins of other people. And it's a matter of being better than others. But God's standard has never been other people. He said, be holy as I am holy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you shall be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So perfection is required. Holiness is required. To be just like Christ is required. No one not like Christ will enter. So we all have to have the blood of Christ upon us to remove every sin. It will do no good to compare yourself to others. Are we any better than they? In no way, Paul says. We have the witness of God's word in verses 10 through 18. First of all, man is depraved in his character, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. You see how that passage begins and ends with the same statement. There is none who are good. Not even one. Man is depraved in his character. And not just some men, but all of mankind we are none of us are righteous notice the emphasis on none and all in these verses it's all inclusive there there are none who seek after god it's not like there are some good people out there who are just seeking for god and hoping to stumble upon him or something man on his own does not seek after god They have all turned aside. To aside means to, to choose the wrong path, to, to go in the wrong direction. It's like someone who's going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction down a one-way street. They have turned aside, chosen, gone in the wrong direction. The... The Greek word here is eklino, it's, uh, related to the word incline. Klino is klein. We use the word incline like a person is inclined to do something because klino means to lean toward. So to be inclined toward something is you, you're, I'm inclined to, to go to Applebee's for lunch. That means that's what, the direction I'm going, right? So incline is to choose a direction usually in a positive way. But this word is not inclined, it's ekklino, outclined. That is, I'm inclined away from. See, mankind is not inclined toward God. They're inclined to run away from God. They're ekklino, they're inclined away from God. 
they have all turned aside. Um, Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Every one of us have been like wandering sheep, Isaiah says. We have all chosen our own way instead of God's way. We've not been inclined towards God. We've chosen the wrong way. Paul says that is true of everyone. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Man is depraved in character. That leads to man being depraved in communication because of what comes out of his heart. Look at verses um, uh, 13 through 15 or 14 here. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their, their throat is like an open tomb or grave. Now, back then, you, they would put a body in a tomb and roll a stone over it and it would close it up but eventually that person would start decaying if you were to to open that tomb then the stench of death would be so obvious it would overpower you well Paul is saying that this is true of their communication that their, their throat is an open tomb Jesus said those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts murders, adulteries, fornications thefts, false witnesses blasphemies it is out of the heart that this evil speaking in every form of, of evil comes their throat is like this open Tomb displaying their dead heart. And of course, it comes across in how they communicate with, with one another. Man is depraved in conduct, verse 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. They're, they're quick to do violence. They're not reluctant to sin. They are quick at it. They want to. They're hungry for it. And in so many ways, they are depraved in conduct. And finally, man is depraved in comprehension. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is really a problem, isn't it? There is no fear of God before their eyes. They, they do not acknowledge God. They, they do not honor Him. They do not worship Him. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. Without the fear of God, there's nothing but sin and wrath to come.
There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now judgment for the breaking of the law, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Everyone is guilty. That all the world may become guilty or accountable before God. That particular word that's translated guilty or accountable. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament, but it's used often in Greek literature back of this day in the legal system to speak of someone who is answerable to or uh, who is liable for persecution. Liable to be persecuted. Uh, prosecuted, I mean. <laughs> liable for prosecution. Uh, someone who is uh, being called out as being guilty. All the world may become guilty before God. Notice that it is before God. Again, it's not just whether man thinks it is or not. There are a lot of things in this life that man thinks is okay. And it's getting worse and worse, the things that man will approve of. Even courts will allow. That doesn't mean it's right with God. And in the end, we stand before God. That all the world may be guilty before God. Earlier in that phrase, that every mouth may be stopped. Eventually, at the judgment seat, every mouth is going to be stopped. <coughs> Who among us would like to take the witness stand in their own defense to God? Who among us would like to plead our own righteousness before our Heavenly Father and Holy God? Every mouth will be stopped. Everyone is guilty, and we know we are guilty. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. No flesh will be justified in his sight. It's not just saying that no one or no human being will be justified, as some translations say, although that's true, no one and no human being. But I think that to translate it more directly, exactly as it is, that no flesh will be justified has its place. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 3 through 5. <clears throat> Romans 8, starting at verse 3. And what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh that man could never fulfill the requirements of the law through the weakness of flesh. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. As Paul argues in Galatians 5, the the Spirit and the flesh are contrary to one another, warring against one another. And so, back in chapter 3, verse 20, for by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. That is, no one who's... uh, The old man, no one in their own strength, no one in their own flesh is going to be able to be justified by the law in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The the purpose of the law is not to remove sin. The purpose of the law is to point out sin. It's like if you uh, think you have a broken bone in your arm and you go to get an x-ray well the x-ray shows the broken bone but the x-ray doesn't do anything to heal it right x-ray can't do anything to take it away to to heal it to make it right if you go get a cat scan and it shows you have cancer the, the cat scan cannot remove the cancer it just shows that it's there so the law is like this cat scan or an x-ray the law doesn't take it away, it just proves to you that it's there. Only Christ can take it out of the way. So we close today, go to Psalm 51. I want to close with that psalm because that's uh, the psalm that, that Paul quoted from earlier. And I'd like our worship team to come up as we prepare for communion and we prepare our hearts. We're going to sing White as Snow in just a moment. Psalm 51, starting at verse 1. In light of what we just read in, in uh, Romans 3, this, the case against man... This is a prayer that all of us could pray. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Purge me with hyssop. In the the day of the Passover, the first Passover, when Israel was in Egypt, God told them through Moses to sacrifice a lamb and then use 
hyssop to dip into the lamb and to spread it on the doorpost and the lintel of the door so that when the angel of death passed over, it would pass over those homes marked by the blood of the lambs. And that's what David is alluding to here. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. I need the application of the blood of a lamb. Jesus Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. It's what God does for us. If you are a believer, then you know this and you can rejoice in the fact that though you were being spoken of in Romans 3, 1 through 20, God has redeemed you from that. He has bought you. He has paid for your sin. If you do not yet know Him, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's what you need to do. You all stand guilty before Him, and He is the only hope. Let's stand together as we sing White as Snow in preparation for communion today. Mm-hmm.